the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Yes, it is indeed, and a good morning to you. Thanks for being with us. As we get started at nine, uh, 10 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock, rather, on this Wednesday, it's the eighth morning of the third month of the year of our Lord 2023. Let's make it a good day. Let's make it a positive day. Let's make it a productive day. We're going to be productive. I can promise you that. We've got three great guests who are going to be coming on the program this morning. Christina Bob in less than a half an hour at 9.35. Jack Posobiec at 10.10. Jack Windsor at 11.10. Jack, of course, uh, the second Jack Windsor is our uh, regular Wednesday commentator from uh, the Ohio Press Network. Jack Posobiec. Is, uh, is another story altogether. Jack Posobiec is going to be the featured keynote speaker on, uh, uh, at one of the nights at the Bringing America Back to Life convention, which is, of course, coming up on Friday and Saturday, all day and night Friday, all day and night on Saturday. I will be emceeing the entire event. I'm looking forward to it again. Um, this will be the third consecutive year in which I've done this. Third or fourth. I, for some reason, I want to say it's the fourth one. i got to go back and think about who all of the guest speakers were uh, and the keynote speakers at the other events. But um, 
Uh, but Jack Posobiec is a brilliant, brilliant conservative author and pundit, and he's going to be one of the guest speakers. We're going to talk about uh, what it means uh, on uh, uh, for Friday and Saturday. By the way, because I will be there all day Friday, Peter Kirstenau will be hosting for me. And uh, I probably should have remem- uh, mentioned that to you yesterday when we talked to Pete. But Pete will be in and hosting for us live on Friday, so that's a special treat for you as I go and do the job at the uh, – uh, bringing America back to life convention. Molly Smith, by the way, and her team are simply incredible. What they were able to put on, what they uh, what they've done. Now this will be the fourteenth consecutive year, the fourteenth consecutive year uh, that they have held this very very important conference hosted by the Cleveland Right to Life. And uh, like I said, I'm honored to be there. So uh, we're going to talk to Jack about that. Christina Bob, who's going to join me in less than a half hour, is going to talk about something that the left doesn't want you to talk about anymore. Because it is the stolen 2020 election that they like to call the big lie uh, that led to January 6th and the attempted peaceful, attempted peaceful that did get out of control, but the peaceful objection to the certification of the election on January 6th, 2021, which of course continues to be a massive story particularly because Tucker Carlson continues to roll out little bits and pieces, still haven't had any kind of a big meal with this yet. He's got over 40,000 hours of tape released to him by uh, Kevin McCarthy, and uh, he's kind of rolling it out. It's a bit of a slow roll, a little bit on Monday, a little bit less on Tuesday. Quite frankly, it was a little bit less last night. Um, But at any rate, it all goes back to what the left doesn't want you to talk about. They continue to call it the big lie, and they continue to call that the, le- the lead up to the insurrection. Christina Bob is the author of Stealing Your Vote, the inside story of the 2020 election and what it means for 2024. So this isn't, you know, just one of those things where, well, we're going to rehash the old stuff again. It's about how it impacts what's to come. So it's looking back at the very recent past yeah, with an eye toward what it means in the very, very near future, which, of course, is next year's uh, presidential election. And the cycle, it begins this summer, quite frankly. Let's be, be real about that. So we'll talk to Christina Bob, we'll talk to uh, Jack Posobiec, and we'll talk to Jack Windsor. Of course, we'll talk to you at 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Had some really good calls the last couple of days about some very important things. I want you to keep that up very seriously. We are not a caller-dependent show. We are not a caller-driven show. A lot of uh, a lot of people do what's called caller-driven radio. Uh, I do commentary and guest-driven radio, but I want you to be a part of it and tell me what you think. So it's not volume of calls that I like. I like is what I like is quality calls. In the last two days, the first two days of this week's shows have been extraordinarily high-quality calls. I really like that. So keep that stuff coming. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Okay, uh, before I get into the news of the morning, let's go ahead and do our pledge. Let's go ahead and stand. If you are a patriot who believes in that flag and what it represents, let's stand and pledge our allegiance to it. If you have one, face it. If you don't, that's all right. But put your hand on your heart and join us for our pledge. If you are among the woke leftists in this country, who continue to demonize the word merit and the word meritocracy, all because it helps advance a very, very crooked political agenda of your own, well, then you don't believe in what that flag represents. You are therefore exempted from the request to pledge your allegiance to it. You may instead take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback. While the rest of us stand and say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, 
indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. So the real question is, is when will they ever learn in the most woke school district maybe in America, in Fairfax County, Virginia? And while I know we have our own problems in an extraordinarily high number of school districts within the sound of my voice right now in Northeast Ohio and certainly across Ohio, that's reality. I know that. This is, this is big because of what it means on, a, on, the, on, the, on the macro level. And that's why we're focusing on Fairfax County Public Schools. You remember how their sister st- uh, school, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, School of what is it, Science and Technology, uh, really, really one of the highest performing schools in America. They last year, or actually a couple of months ago, we found out that last year <clears throat> they refused to inform students who had qualified for, applied for, and won scholarships, merit scholarships, which would provide them with big-time dollars to help them with their college uh, costs ahead, um, the school refused to tell them about it. And the reason why is equity. Because not enough of the students who won those merit scholarships met the, the rainbow color. And that, that isn't referring to the LGBTQ rainbow, meaning just that a myriad of colors and, and, and ethnicities represented. There weren't enough, in other words, there weren't enough POC, weren't enough people of color, uh, as they say, who won those awards. And they don't want them to feel bad. And they don't want anybody else to feel bad. So they just withheld the acknowledgement of those awards from the, um, from the students who, who had earned them. It's, it's a scandal of, of extraordinary proportion. I don't know that it's gotten nearly enough uh, attention, and it, it's gotten attention in national media. But it's still not enough, in my estimation, until they uh, find a way to recognize those students who deserve those awards and then give them the money that was withheld from them for college. But that's past. That brings us to present now. Fairfax County Public Schools, one of the largest school divisions in the country, 198 schools, serving about 181,000 students. One would think that a school this size or a district this size um, would you know, provide a lot of opportunities for a lot of students, and yeah, they do. One of the opportunities is the opportunity to take college prep classes, take college prep courses, some of them actually for college credits. You can go in as a freshman with already some credits under your belt, those kinds of things. You've seen it. You may have students who are in that in your own schools. Well, last month, parents of 8th graders at one of the schools there in Fairfax County were sent a letter advising them of these college prep classes, which can really, really help them. But not all parents received them. The parents only of black and Hispanic students received them. The classes were only to be held for black and Hispanic students. White students, Asian students... You want to attend college prep courses, take these classes to get yourself ready for the next level level of your educations? Sorry, you are the wrong color or the wrong ethnicity. You don't qualify. This is one of their equity programs. They're offering college prep classes only to black and Hispanic students. Do you remember what I talked about earlier? It was toward the end of last week, and I think on Monday we hit it too meritocracy merit being the most evil demonic word i think in the entire uh, leftist vocabulary if people are qualified and if people are the best at what they do they need not apply 
Because if you are qualified, and if you are the best at what you do, it's probably a result of your ethnic or racial privilege. And we don't want you here. There's too many of you here. So we want to take people who are less than qualified, who look a little bit different than you, so that we can have more equity. And that means college prep courses, too. So if you're Asian and you're really, really smart and you can handle a college prep class, sorry, go sit your smart behind down in a regular class. You don't get the college prep class because there's too many like you. If you're white and you're high achieving, go high achieve in a regular class. We don't want you either. You already have what it takes to go to college. You don't need any more college prep. You don't get to attend and you don't get to uh, to take this class. This is literally what they have been uh, what they have announced. February 21st, parents of 8th grade students were asked whether their children were considering college and could benefit from college preparation classes. The lessons were only available, however, to black or Hispanic students, as well as those with disabilities or language barriers. Um, according to the report, a journalist named Azra Damani, who obtained the letter, tweeted, In the 20th century, Asian Exclusion Act denied Asians to equal opportunities. Now, Fairfax County promotes a college prep program with race-based admissions, excluding those same Asians and whites. A judge has already ruled that Fairfax County schools violated the U.S. Constitution in new anti-Asian admissions. Namani noted that the benefits of the program were substantial. Those who were attending were given academic counseling, access to colleges to experience their teaching, and advice on completing college and scholarship applications. But apparently, only black and Hispanic students needed such benefits. Now, one might say, well, if the black students and the Hispanic students are a little bit underperforming. Maybe taking a college prep course would be good for them. So maybe we got to leave this one alone. Two things in response. Number one, why would it be exclusive? Even if you wanted to promote this in the African-American or Hispanic student population and send this to their parents saying, hey, did you know this is here? In order to promote more people of color in those classes, that's fine. Why would you make it exclusive to them? Why not allow them to take those classes in the same room with Asian students and white students who are interested in taking the same classes? What would be the need for that? Why the exclusivity? And number two, when you engage in said exclusivity, you engage in textbook discrimination in full violation of civil rights. You cannot discriminate against anyone, whether it be for application for a job or for a home loan or for anything else. You cannot discriminate based on race, based on color. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They're discriminating based on race, which is never okay. Of the 17,760 black students in the Fairfax County Public Schools, that's about 10% of the total student body. Hispanics, about 28%. Sounds like there would be plenty of room in those cor- in those classrooms for white and Asian students to take them as well. Why the exclusivity? The school, by the way, has an anti-discrimination policy itself based in the federal laws that reads, no applicant or employee on the basis of 
race, sex, color, age, religion, sexual orientation, or gender identity, national origin, genetic information, pregnancy status, childbirth, or related medical conditions, marital status, veteran status, and disability shall be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any uh, education program or activity as required by law. Ding, 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 ding. There it is. It's literally in your own policy, but what are they doing? They are crushing people who have merit. They are discriminating against people specifically for their achievement, specifically because of their achievement and their color. Merit must be quashed. Affirmative action must be promoted. Which, by the way, brings us to a second story. I'm going to have to get into it in more depth later. Jason Riley has written a piece for the City Journal with some great, potentially great news. Is it possible that the Supreme Court of the United States is on the verge of outlawing uh, affirmative action altogether? It is. Affirmative action's days may finally be numbered thanks to the current court and some cases that have come before them and some rulings that have given an indication that maybe, just maybe, the Supreme Court is going to balance the scales of justice and stop giving people extra points and extra consideration simply because of what they look like, as opposed to giving people consideration based on what they can do, based on what their merit is, based upon their abilities. No more discrimination based on appearance, only awarding and rewarding students and people and so forth, uh, job applicants and so forth, based on whether or not they're good enough to do the job. So that's a huge story that we're going to talk about as well. For now, though, it's 925, so we'll take our time out here. We've got uh, Christina Bob is going to join us after the bottom of the hour news, but we'll open up the phone lines, too, at 216-901-0945. Right back on Always Right. Okay, it's 928, Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. So, yeah, just super quick. I don't have time to get into much of the depth of the article. In fact, we're going to probably invite Jason Riley on to come on next week to talk about this um, um, potentially explosive decision from the Supreme Court. Last year, writes Jason for the City Journal, in anticipation of two Supreme Court cases challenging the use of race as a factor in college admissions, the New York Times ran a story on public opinion on, on, of affirmative action. The co-authors queried a dozen college students who were flabbergasted by the responses, although they shouldn't have been. For those Americans who assume that college students today are left-wing activists who aren't in touch with the real world, our latest focus group will be especially eye-opening, the article in the New York Times began. Rarely have we been surprised by a focus group as when we asked this racially and socioeconomically diverse group of 12 students whether they supported affirmative action in college admissions, because just one of them said yes. And I'll stop it there for now. Again, that's a very, very small sample size for a poll. It's 12 students. But they did try to reach out to 12 very racially and socioeconomically diverse people in these classes. And in left-wing college campus environments, of course, which they all are, one would think that they would all say, of course, affirmative action, diversity, inclusion, equity, die, everyone. But they're not saying that. 
but the most important thing isn't what students say. The most important thing is what Supreme Court justices say about it. And according to the research done by Jason, they may be on the verge of agreeing and saying goodbye to affirmative action altogether. That would be quite a thing. We'll talk more about it. But right now, we'll take our break. Bottom of the hour, Christina Bob is going to join us next to talk about the stolen 2020 election, but not just to look back how it impacts the 2024 election looking forward. That conversation is coming up on AM 1420 The Answer. Spreading the light of liberty and holding the line against the darkness of tyranny. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, 936. Good morning to you. Thanks for being with us on AM 1420, The Answer. Jack Posobiec going to join us at the uh, top of the hour. We're going to talk to Jack Windsor in the third hour. But right now, we're going to talk about a, a subject that the left is tired of having us talk about. They don't want us to talk about it anymore at all. They want us to just say, nope, Joe Biden won, and there is that's all there is to it. Joe Biden won, and a whole bunch of anarchists uh, tried to commit an insurrection, literally tried to overthrow the government, the duly elected government on January 6th. You've been watching Tucker for the last couple of nights, showing some, very limited, by the way, and I'm hoping for a lot more, of the footage um, of what happened on January 6th. They called that an insurrection. They're lying, and it's all a result of what uh, I believe was a stolen 2020 election, which they called the big lie. How about that? Well, what does 2020 have to do with 2024? That's one of the questions posited by our next guest, who is an author. She's an investigative reporter. She's an attorney, and she's a former TV host. This book is called Stealing Your Vote, the Inside Story of the 2020 Election. We're going to talk about what 2020 means about 2024 as well. Christina Bob joins us on AM 1420, The Answer. Christina, thanks for the time this morning. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, they don't like that term very much, uh, stolen election. They don't like talking about rigged elections. They don't like talking about things being robbed. They don't want to hear about 2,000 mules. They don't want to hear about manipulated voting machines. It's all a big lie. That's what they call yeah. this whole thing. And now you wrote an entire book about it, Christina. Um, tell me how you address their allegations that we are just all a whole bunch of conspiracy nuts. Yeah, I mean, it's a complete sham, as you've already alluded to. Uh, the way I like to summarize the book and my findings is that Democrats cheated and Republicans covered it up. Um, I'm guilty of it myself, oftentimes kind of framing this as a Democrats versus Republican issue, but it, it really is not. And I think more and more Americans understand that now. It really is an issue of this political class, the swamp, the deep state, the establishment, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, versus the American people. It's a, a small group of people who believe they have a right to consolidate America's governmental power among themselves and not allow the masses to participate. And that's not what we're founded on. You know, that's not the way America is designed to run. And so uh, I was an investigative reporter for One American News at the time of the 2020 election. I'm now working for President Trump. And uh, I just spent months and months on the ground in Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, you know, all over the place, Pennsylvania, uh, trying to investigate and see what happened, talk to witnesses and, uh, Stealing your vote is its kind of the compilation of what I found in, in each of these states. So the crime committed by the Democrats, the cover-up by the Republicans, kind of gives, uh, you know, uh, credibility or gives, uh, uh, you know, support, support to the idea of a uniparty. Is there a uniparty operating in Washington that uh, essentially does not care who they take down as long as their agenda is advanced? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, uniparty is it's an undefined term, but I would say, yeah, I think there's a group of people, both Democrats and Republicans, who are annoyed that the American public actually want to have a say in how our government is run. I mean, Mitch McConnell is the perfect example of a Republican. And then, of course, the whole Democrat establishment is completely schizophrenic and has lost their mind. So, but, but they work with Republicans who try to minimize Americans' ability to hold their government accountable. So, um, yes, if that's a uniparty, I would say yes, there absolutely is. Yeah, and you know, we'll come back to Mitch McConnell and this idea of a uniparty because both he and uh, his partner in crime, in my estimation, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, gave the same speech yesterday about the about the uh, January six footage being shown yeah. by Tucker. We'll talk about that. But but going back to the, what they call the big lie, and going back to vote dumping, going back to uh, so many different uh, uh, elements of the of the fraud that we have all, I, I feel like we have all kind of witnessed and are in agreement upon, uh, which happened. But how do you, Christina, in the book, address the obvious, you know, uh, clap back from those on the left who say it was a legitimate election, who say, look, if you, there was any truth whatsoever to what you're saying, then it would have come mm-hmm. out in court. Sixty some different courts either heard or refused to heard or refused to hear, beg your pardon, um, you know, some of these challenges to the in- integrity of the election. And you lost every single one of them. So that's been their argument for two and a half years now. How do you yeah. address that? I do address that, and the answer is there was not a single court that was willing to hear the case, not as it relates to 2020. Certainly, Carrie Lake's case was the first one where they actually admitted evidence. Prior to Carrie Lake's case, following the 2022 midterm, as it relates to the 2020 election, there was not a single court who allowed witnesses to testify, who allowed evidence to be put forward and actually considered the merit of what we were trying to argue. Now, when I say we, I just mean conservatives. It wasn't all Trump. There were other other cases as well. And they were all thrown out on standing. Standing, mootness, timing, procedural issues, um, none of them were thrown out on substance. And so we really have just had this stonewall from the court. Now, you know, every judge is different. Every judge probably has a different motivation, whether it's fear, you know, fear of reprisal, fear of the leftist mob showing up at their house, corruption, whatever it is. I don't, I don't know what caused that, but the, there's something driving these judges. And, and, and I think it probably is fear. You know, you look at Georgia, there's a Georgia case that's been going on for a few years now where they initially they were granted the right to inspect the ballot from the 2020 election. And then 10 months after litigate, they've been litigating the issue for 10 months. And then the court comes back and says, oh, you know what? You don't have standing. And threw it out on standing. Well, that's bizarre. Anyone who you don't even have to be a lawyer to know if you follow legal proceedings at all, standing happens at the very beginning of a case. You don't litigate it ten months after the fact. So, um, or you waive it. You know, if you don't challenge standing, you waive it. So, what caused that judge to reverse course? Now that judge reversed course and said, "Oh, you don't have standing." Threw it out. It went up through the court of appeals and through the appellate system and was reversed. And the court said, no, you do have standing, and they do have the right to see those ballots. So that it got punted back down. You know, and we're going through that now, watching, waiting to see what happens when they actually get their hands on these ballots from Georgia. But I mean, I don't, I don't know how to explain it other than they're not following the law, and the courts right. of appeals are actually finding that. 
Yeah, and it's important that people put this into into terms we can all understand, layman's terms rather than legalese, and I think you're doing a great job of that. We're talking with Christina Bob. Uh, her book is Stealing Your Vote, the inside story of the 2020 election and what it means for 2024. And as I said, Christina, you are an investigative reporter. You uh, used to uh, report for One America News. Uh, you are an attorney, but not just any attorney. You're President Trump's attorney. So as such, anybody who uh, you know says, well, you know, clearly there's a bias here. This isn't going to be an objective look at everything that went down in 20." 2020. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so again, how have you been able to? I won't say have you. That's insulting. How have you been able to separate your your legal expertise from your client uh, in in this right. case, in the way you cover this book? Well, the book actually isn't really about Trump. I think I tell one story about him um, of a conversation I have with him in there, and the rest of it really is my interactions with elect other elected uh, excuse me elected officials from Wisconsin, from Arizona, from Pennsylvania. And we don't really get into to President Trump much at all. I do have some data in there about, you know, duplicate voters. And I, I give the statistics for all the states. But the vast majority of the book is about the politics of the election. And it's what the elected officials in those states were doing or not doing and perceived motivations. You know, I, I don't, I can't speculate on their motivations other than you know, why are Republicans blocking these efforts? In every state that I, in every state that I investigated, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, the, there were great patriots on the ground there that just wanted transparency. They wouldn't even say they were trying to overthrow the election. They just wanted to give their constituents peace of mind about what happened in the election, do an audit, investigate a little bit. Every single one of them, without exception, every single one of them was blocked by Republicans. They were, they never even had to fight Democrats on the issue because Republicans would not allow them to move their their investigation forward. So, I mean, <laughs> that I mean that sounds really frustrating, but it's actually a good thing for those of us that that care because all it means is we just have to clean out the Republican side of the aisle. And I firmly believe that if we just clean out our side, meaning we've got enough volunteers, we've got people on the ground, we've got people doing the legwork, grassroots we clean up the Republican side, I I think the elections will be clean enough to get the outcomes that we want. They're not going to be perfect, but I think they'll be clean enough because I genuinely believe we have such a majority, like the majority, it's not even close. Well, I didn't think it was close in 2020 either, but uh, right. they managed to do what they did. So so I, I like your optimism in this, and we'll, we'll get to that too. But uh, you mentioned the name Carrie Lake, Christina, and I want to talk about her. Um, what were the similarities or the biggest differences between what I think was a steal in that Arizona gubernatorial race and, of course, uh, President Trump's uh, presidential run in 2020? What are the similarities in terms of how... Uh, the election was hijacked. If you are indeed yeah. a believer that that Carrie Lake's election was hijacked as well, oh, a hundred percent. I think Carrie Lake's hijacking was more obvious. Uh, you, know, President Trump was was the candidate in 2020, where it was the only election under COVID. We had all these weird COVID rules. They used COVID as an excuse for everything to break the law to uh, disregard the manuals and procedures and just say oh covid we can't follow the law and, and it was a very confusing election because of covid nobody you nobody really had their you know their orientation about what was going on with the election by 2022 everybody one covid was over and two everybody kind of recognized what had happened and in arizona they basically the same thing they did under covid only there was no covid and then when people tried to show up on election day, they printed the election day ballots on 
the wrong size paper so that the machines couldn't read them so that all of the Republican voters who were voting on Election Day got disenfranchised. Um, I think Carrie Lake's case is more obvious. President Trump probably probably won by a much larger margin across the nation. But as far as just the ability to see what happened, I think Carrie Lake's case is night and day. I mean, they've got whistleblowers from run back the ballot printing companies saying there were about 300,000 ballots inserted into the tally that had no chain of custody, meaning they didn't come from the post office, they didn't come from drop boxes, and they didn't come from polling centers. So then where did these 300,000 ballots come from? And I mean, the, the information that came out on Carrie Lake's case, I think, was so, so if it's this information is, yeah, if this information is so much more rock solid than even what you have with President Trump's situation, yeah. why, where are we, why are we sitting here right now with this being settled, uh, a yeah. settled matter? Katie Hobbs, the governor, and Carrie Lake is maybe talking about becoming a vice presidential candidate with President Trump. If all of this is as plain as it sounds like it is, and I have no reason to doubt any word you just said, wh- why on the hell are we still not, why is it not a, a daily update yeah. on the Arizona fraud, the election fraud, and why is this not in front of multiple judges right now where where is this headed yeah no it, it is in front of multiple judges actually and well it's at the arizona supreme court right now but the trial court ruled in favor of katie hobbs i mean the court effectively wrote new law through this case arizona case law is established this has actually happened in arizona history before they had had a governor installed inaugurated and then the election was overturned due to fraud or mismanagement and that governor was removed, and they installed the, excuse me, inaugurated the true winner. That happened in 19, I want to say 1916 or 1919, it was about 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. But there's established case law in Arizona that says if an election, county specific, if an election is uncertain, meaning you can't tell for certain who won that election, then that county needs to be thrown out. That's written into statute, it's established in case law. If you can't say with 100% certainty what the count is in Arizona, the the county is supposed to get thrown out. Well, you have the supervisor of elections for Maricopa County acknowledging that election day, this was Stephen Richer, he put this tweet out, acknowledging that, oh, sorry, we had a problem on election day. We're so sorry for the inconvenience, but don't worry. It didn't inconvenience that many voters. It only inconvenienced about 7% of election day voters, which equates to only about 17,000 ballots. Well, the margin of victory was 17,000. So, in other words, he says, don't worry about it. It didn't change that much. It was only enough to change the outcome of the election. You have the, that, that is the county recorder for Maricopa County is running the election. You also have the county election supervisor who lied under oath, had to acknowledge that he lied under oath at the trial. And the court still said the election was 100% certain and there's no reason to believe there was a problem. So, I think I think it's a judge being partial. Yeah, it would seem like uh, much much more than that. And 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 so let's let's come current now and and be be forward looking Christina Bob. Um, because that's the second part of the subtitle of your book, Stealing Your Vote, the inside story of the 2020 election and what it means for 2024. So we learned a lot of lessons about what they did in 2020. You just described, now that we know a ton of what they did in Arizona uh, as well, 
Um, are we better prepared to stop such fraud in 2024, regardless of whether Trump, President Trump is on the ballot or not? Are we, are, are we any closer? Because it seems like, you know, obviously every state runs their elections how they run their elections. There's no federalized yeah. election standard here. Are, are we prepared in the, in all 50 states or in the handful of swing states that, uh, will know what to look for this time or are they always going to stay one step ahead of what they can do? Well, I think we know what to look for this time and I think we know how to solve it. I wouldn't, I'm not confident yet that we're there. Obviously, 2022 just happened and there were still a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. But I'm very confident and very hopeful that we will be there by the time the primaries roll around. And I would say it comes down to the American people. Get involved. And the reason why they've been able to get away with a lot of this is because we haven't had conservative observers. We haven't had conservative volunteers. We haven't had conservative city or county employees, people working at the ballot printing company. Get involved in this process because that is the only way we can secure it. And I, I like to use Detroit as an example. I spoke with um, I spoke with several different uh, election day volunteers, but there were three in particular who I spoke with separately in Detroit who worked at the TCF Center in Detroit on election day. And separately, they all told me they were outnumbered 100 to 1. There were 100 Democrats for every Republican that was working there. That's impossible. Now, there's a number of it's, – yeah, it's insanity. And there's a number of different issues with that. You know, did the GOP do enough to make sure there were people in there? there? There's questions. But at the end of the day, if we don't have people in there – We've essentially turned over the election to radical leftists to just tell us what the answer is because we don't have people on site. So we have to, have to, have to have people involved. Please do what you can. Get involved in your local area. Get involved in your local precincts. And I, I do believe that if we have enough people that get involved, we will turn the tide. Well, it's going to take every bit of that effort uh, in order to to, to make this yep. right. Uh, well, nothing will ever make right with that which has been you know wronged. But um, in order to right. make sure this doesn't happen again, it will take a massive effort. Christina Bob, the book you need to read. This is this is not like just somebody's you know uh, biography here. This is this is investigative reporting. This book is the result of years of investigative reporting that Christina Bob has done. Uh, it's called Stealing Your Vote: The Inside Story of the 2020 Election and What It Means for 2024. And again, we can all look back and lament what happened and we are very upset about that but most importantly we have to figure out how to fix this so that we can right the ship in 2024 christina hopefully this book is a field guide for people on how to do that i thank you so much for your great work uh and we really appreciate you coming on this morning thank you so much thank you god bless Christina is uh, President Trump's attorney at this moment. Uh, so, you know, some might say, again, she's got a bias here. Well, she's got a bias on, 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 on behalf of the truth. Her bias is in favor of truth. So if that's a bad thing to have, a bias in favor of truth over lies, truth over fraud, well, then good. I'm glad she's biased because there was a stolen election in 2020. There was a worse stolen gubernatorial election in 2022, as we covered. But we have to make sure that none of those things can happen in 2024. All right, uh, seven minutes before the top of the hour. Quick time out on Always Right Radio. Right back. Okay, 957. Always Right Radio. Thanks to Christina Bob. Um, wow. There's so much information that she has jammed into this book, uh, and I've only been able to skim, and I've been able to pull enough of that out to talk about what uh, happened in 2020, and she made a very, very good comparison to what just happened in uh, uh, in November in uh, 2022, uh, excuse me, 2022, November in 2022 in Arizona with the uh, Cary Lake situation. So make sure you pick up that book. Uh, coming up, 
After the top of the hour, we're going to talk to Jack Posobiec. Jack is a really, really great story, and uh, he's a great storyteller, too. He's a senior editor at Human Events. He's a Navy veteran. Uh, he is an author, and he's a devout Catholic. He's going to be one of the uh, key speakers. Actually, he's the breakfast speaker. Um on a Saturday morning at the Bringing America Back to Life event, uh, the convention, uh, which, which is fighting for not just obviously life when it comes to the abortion issue, but so much more. And he's going to talk about family first conservatism. So that conversation is coming up and I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, then Jack Windsor is going to join us coming up at, uh, 11.10 this morning. So we do have a lot uh, of great stuff uh, still to offer, but I want to hear from you too, uh, in between and after those interviews because um, quite frankly, there is enough material here for us to fill 10 hours just with what we have this morning, and I want specifically for you to answer a couple of questions for me, particularly about the uh, affirmative action story I led with this morning. Actually, I led with the, the meritocracy part of the story, but then into the affirmative action story. According to reporters covering the Supreme Court, the court is poised in this term to repeal affirmative action, to end it, to make meritocracy the rule of the day, to tell people you don't get extra points because you look one way or another, to tell people you don't get favoritism or get access to things because you look one way over another, that true equality will be the hallmark of this country and its laws, which is, of course, what it was intended to be. Equality, not equity. See, Bernie Sanders might not know the difference between those two words. The Supreme Court justices do. And I want to know, do you think affirmative action should just be completely wiped off the books in the United States? That's a question for you when you dial us at 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Pick your spots. Hit them where they ain't. Before, between, and after our guests, I do want to hear from you on that issue. We'll be back after the news on AM 1420. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Onward into hour number two now at eight minutes after 10 o'clock. Good morning to you. Thanks for being with us. It is a Wednesday, the eighth morning of the third month in the year of our Lord, 2023. You know why I do that every single hour? If you don't, you got to pay more attention because I make the explanation once in a while. Uh, very much looking forward to emceeing, as I told you before. For the third consecutive year, the uh, Bringing America Back to Life Convention. It's going to be a phenomenal two-day event on Friday. By the way, when I am out on Friday hosting that or emceeing that event, Peter Kersenow is in the longest-serving commissioner in the history of the United States Civil Rights Commission. How about that? Uh, yeah, Pete will be in force uh, and be taking through the uh, show on Friday. Uh, we've got a huge convention. A lot of people wondered, well, let me rephrase. Some people wondered if there was going to be a need for bringing America back to life uh, um, in uh, March of 2023 after the summer of 2022, and we found out Roe versus Wade was um, was repealed, essentially. And the answer, of course, is the fight is harder now than it was before. Because now we got 50 different state legislatures looking 
well, let me rephrase. We have 50 different state legislators we have to, legislatures we have to look at. Some of them are looking to make abortion even more readily accessible through all nine months of pregnancy than it was under Roe. So the fight continues this weekend, and there is a massive cavalcade of t- tremendous speakers that are going to be there. One of them is on hold with me right now. He is going to be the breakfast speaker on Saturday at Bringing America Back to Life. He is Jack Posobiec, Senior Editor of Human Events, which is a phenomenal uh, publication, a political news and an analysis outlet. He is a Navy veteran. Uh, he is uh, a Washington D- was rather a Washington D.C. correspondent with One American News. Uh, he is an author and he is a, an avid pro-lifer. He believes he's a devout Catholic who believes in life and a beginning at conception, and that the fight must continue. He joins us now on AM fourteen twenty. The answer with a little preview of what we can expect on Saturday. Jack, good to have you on the air here in Cleveland, Ohio. How are you, sir? Well, I'm really excited to be on, and, and in fact, I'm really excited to be back, uh, coming back to Cleveland this weekend for the event. It's tremendous. I actually haven't been back to Cleveland. I've been to Ohio from Pennsylvania originally, the Philadelphia area. Don't hold that against me. <laughs> but uh, the last the last time I was in Cleveland was actually for the RNC in, in 2016, so it's been that long. Wow. And I have graced the shores of Cleveland well, we are looking forward to you coming back. And uh, by the way, if you'd have said Pittsburgh, we'd have had a problem. Philadelphia, we're okay with, I suppose, a little bit. Just, uh, just to let you know, we won't hold. Okay, okay. You. you know, funny enough, though, it, it, amazingly. So, my wife, born and raised in the Soviet Union, believe it or not, comes to America. That's almost as bad as Pittsburgh. I know, right? But it, she ends <laughs> up in Youngstown. Would you believe it or not? Wow! How about that? Uh, that's, Ends up that, in Youngstown, yeah. That's that's phenomenal. Um, what 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 a great backstory. So so Jack, let's talk about um, what we're going to do uh, this weekend and what you're going to do specifically Saturday morning. Um, I mean, obviously you are a very very devout person and you are pro life. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been invited here. You're going to talk, I understand, about family first conservatism. What does that mean to you? That's right. So family first conservatism is. And I, I spoke at CPAC this last weekend here in Washington, D.C. at the National Harbor. And I, I, I had a line there. I, I didn't really have time, because they only give you so much time in the CPAC speeches, to break out exactly what I meant by it. But I said, I wish I could, you know how when your phone, um, you wake up and your phone says, oh, you have to download the new, you know, the new operating right. system, or, right. or, you, or you've already downloaded it, you didn't even know, because it happened when you were asleep, because our phones control us now. Well, so I said, I wish sometimes that I could push out an an operating system update to the conservative movement when it comes to the question of family and when it comes to the question of life, because I believe that being pro-life is a function of being pro-family. It's not the other way around. You You can't isolate it. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. And what I would say is that in conservatism for a long time, we have put a massive priority on economic issues. And those are important. Don't get me wrong. Economic issues are key. And in fact, we need economic issues to be in, uh, in the right place in order to create family formation. But instead, I feel like we've been putting the rights of the family and the importance of the family on the back burner. I say you flip it. I say that we should have an economy and we should be pursuing policies, economic policies, family policies, that are driving towards family formation. Look, I'm uh, generationally, I think you would, I'm sort of one of those elder millennials. I'm kind of in between Gen X and millennial. Mm-hmm. And in my generation, we went through the financial crisis, the Iraq war, 
we went through, and then obviously Afghanistan, everything that happened afterwards. We do not have good family formation in my generation. We don't have it at all. People are not getting married. People are not having children. People are not buying homes. This is a huge problem, and it's only going to get worse. Did you know that uh, for 18 to 29-year-olds right now, 69% of men are single. From 18 to 29, they're single. There's something wrong in our country when it comes to family formation, and we as conservatives need to step up, figure out what that is, and then start putting those policies first. And I love the fact that the pro-life community is coming together and understanding this, because we don't just want an end of abortion, right? And I think the left does, you know, played all these games and said, oh, you hate women, you hate women, you're a misogynist, you're this, they'll call you every name under the sun. And then you'll say, well, if you're going to take out abortion, then you should have families that come together and man should take care of the children. I say, have you ever actually talked to a pro-lifer? That's what we all believe. That's what we all want. <laughs> no, so very well said. Hundreds and thousands of years. Um, and it's, but I do think, right, it's because we always lead with the anti-abortion argument that we want to paint the picture. And when I, I think that conservatives can do a better job, and we are, right, we are doing a much better job of explaining that we don't just want uh, an end of abortion. We want healthy, happy children. I've got two little boys at home right now, four-year-old and two-year-old. We want stable families. We want strong families. We want the whole package. And I think, number one, that in this fight, when we present it that way to the left, or or really the people in the middle, right, because the people that are on the far left, you're not going to reach them. But the people in the middle that might be willing to listen to you, they want the exact same thing. Jack, we're talking to Jack Posobiec. He is uh, the senior editor at Human Events, and again, he is a veteran Navy intel officer, and he is a a guest speaker, and it's going to be a phenomenal one this weekend at... um, the Bringing America Back to Life Convention. I want to drill down a little bit deeper on this family thing because there there are so many forces, Jack, working against the family. There are so many forces in the media. There are so many forces in education. Um, you know, we continue to hear about uh, dismantling. When when BLM was first became popularized, BLM came out and, and they said, what do we believe? And they put their little statement out there. They had to retract it eventually because people realized how incredibly dangerous it was. But they literally said, we dismantle patriarchal practices, which means, of course, we want to get rid of the father role. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Uh, we foster a queer affirming network and so on and so forth. The traditional nuclear family of a mother and a father raising their child together, raising them uh, to to do the same thing, to to go on and perpetuate the same exact model, to go in, uh, in, in and get married and, and, again, have children after they get married, raise them the same way and so on and so forth, the way this great civilization was built, is under attack. And, and the biggest part of that is, again, um, the role of the father is being diminished so much by the left so in, this, in this society, so in this culture of ours. What you're advocating for in your speech and what you're talking about, what you talked about at CPAC and what you're going to talk about on Saturday is, I mean, you talk about an uphill climb. I mean, every force, I think, in America is working against us. I, I think you're exactly right. And by the way, there's a reason for that, right? It's, it's being This isn't happening by accident. This is happening by design. They want to remove the father figure from the household. They want to remove the, the role of the father completely because they want to replace the father with the government. They want to replace it with big business. They want to replace it with, uh, with Netflix and YouTube and everything else under the sun that can provide for that role of being 
the uh, sort of the head of the family and right. the overall provider for the family, which, of course, we've seen. You see this in the inner city. You see this in, uh, in, in some rural areas that have seen economic depression, where when, when the family is broken down, everything is broken down. That is how you destabilize a society. That is how you set the preconditions for a revolution. I just mentioned my, you know, my wife was born in the Soviet Union. My family's Polish. Okay, we've seen this kind of stuff before. We know what happens when people come in and tell you they're going to make everything better by making everyone equal, and when they're going to take away your your uh, old-fashioned. Uh, hokey traditions that have no place in modern society. They've got no bearing on our new technological way of life. No, it's all a load of bunk. The fact is that the single family unit, which by the way predates the Bible itself, right? We have evidence that that we've had uh, that we've had marriage uh, that going all the way back, well, obviously not back to Adam and Eve, but you know what I'm saying, that it, it predates the, the rise of even religion itself. It's one of the oldest institutions that we have as a people, period. And so the understanding of mother, a father, and two children, that is the basis not only for a successful family, it is the very nucleus and uh, DNA structure of society itself, of civilization itself. So if you start breaking that down, you will achieve on a mass scale the destabilization of an entire society. And why is this done? Look, we can go into uh, Marcuse, you can read Marx, you can read et cetera. At the end of the day, they hate our society. They hate Western society. They hate our institutions. They hate the people that they view as, you know, quote unquote, the oppressors. And they want to destroy all of it and put themselves in their place. It's as simple as that. Everything else, window dressing, everything else they say is just uh, a trick to get you to, to believe them. That's what they want at the end of the day. And how do I know it? Because they've tried it all over the world and it's failed every time. Jack Posobiec is my guest. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jack is uh, a Navy veteran. He is uh, the senior editor at Human Events. He's going to be a keynote uh, speaker at the breakfast uh, uh, event on Saturday as part of bringing America back uh, to life. Jack, um, you spoke at CPAC. Um, I, I want to get your view on where not just the family, great explanation so far, but but in general where conservatism lives right now in this culture. Um, I've been doing a lot of my shows in recent days and weeks um, about about them trying to force conservatives into a closet in the same way that they burst out of the closet with the LGBTQ agenda. They are trying to stuff people into a closet. You can't wear a red MAGA hat in public or you are going to be scorned. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be ridiculed. You cannot even wear a T-shirt um, promoting a, a Republican candidate or promoting any kind of a cause that is important to you. They're trying to make it too dangerous and too shameful to be a conservative in America. And I think there's there's going to come a time, and I think we're there, quite frankly, in which we need to stop that immediately. We need to be proud of being right and proud of being righteous, um, no matter how much the left pushes back, no matter how much the media pushes back, no matter, no matter how much uh, uh, you know the, the, uh, the education systems that are warping our kids' minds push back. They're trying to demonize conservatism to the point where we're afraid to acknowledge it, and guess what happens when people don't see other people who think like they do around? They go silent, because there's safety and there's strength in numbers. So they're trying to divide us and, and minimize us and marginalize us. So how do we get our swagger back where we say we are loud and proud of our conservative values because they're American values? 
Well, the process you're discussing is is a typical textbook process that's used in the demoralization uh, scenarios by forces that are seeking to undermine society. What you're talking about is the process of atomization. It's this idea that you are the only one who believes these terrible, horrible things. The majority is completely against you. Uh, you'll never see. You'll never see in mainstream media. You'll never see. It, a, a great example. Great example. If if what happened in East Palestine with this train derailment and the toxic chemicals that were then released and, and burned off into that river, if that had happened in, in a blue city, if that had happened in a major area, if that had happened in New York City, there'd be concerts, there'd be celebrities, Paul McCartney would be flying in, Lady Gaga would be there, Beyonce would be there, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, et cetera, et cetera. But when it happens in Ohio, they say it doesn't matter because you don't exist to them. You don't you, you don't rate your flyover country. You're a bunch of Trump supporting uh, this and that. And, and we don't care about you. Right. So they won't even mention. By the way, I, w- I have a line about that where I always say that the only time they ever actually show the Midwest in in Hollywood is when it's some kind of horror movie or like Stranger Things or something like that. Uh, then, you know, it's never it's never just a normal story. No, of course not. Uh, <laughs> so true. And, and, you know, how do you know, it, it goes back to John Carpenter and Halloween. Um, but that people need to understand that that's why events like this weekend, events like CPAC, events that even, even just, just holding events on your own, even, even small events where people are getting together and discussing these issues, shows like yours. We do a show over at Human Events Daily every day. Get at humanevents.com. We do the work there. That's why these independent events are so important because we need to fight back against this process of atomization and remind ourselves and remind each other that when we gather together, when two are gathered, when three are gathered, when 10, when a thousand are gathered, that is how you can actually move systems. And it becomes a major threat to those forces that are seeking to atomize us in the first place. Jack Posobiec, last question for you, and this one might be the toughest one, or at least uh, depending on whether or not you want to reveal yet, if you've made up your mind. But since you were at CPAC, you participated, I assume, in the straw poll. Uh, are you ready to make a I position? Did. Okay. Are you ready to establish uh, what leadership you want to see in this conservative comeback in 2024? Oh, I, I, I think it's Trump all the way. I think he's got a lot of unfinished business. I think that he was robbed of his second term. I think his second term absolutely needs to be had. And and the way I look at it is, and I can be a little diplomatic, I am from D.C. after all, so i got to be a politician, <laughs> is that, look, you do you, people are saying Trump or DeSantis. Why not Trump and DeSantis? You can do four years, then you do eight years. I'm talking about a 12-year plan. Let's go. Uh, never in a million years. I don't think that would ever happen. I mean, why would Ron DeSantis want to uh, anchor himself to a man who has done nothing, even though he hasn't even des- declared his candidacy yet, but demonize him and and uh, and discredit well, Ron him? Ron DeSantis has been raising a lot of money. Ron DeSantis has been hiring campaign staff. I think it's pretty clear that he's going to run. But what I'm also saying is that no, Trump I understand that. But what I mean is what what Trump has said DeSantis about him run yeah. after. Yeah, I, I, I think President Trump is threatened. I think President Trump is threatened by somebody else with a with a with a very high Q rating and a very high popularity scale. Ron DeSantis has that. He cannot, he oh, cannot no, lose no any chance. of his spotlight. Chance right, slaughtered against Trump in a primary. No question. Yeah, and uh, no, I'm not talking about a primary. I'm talking about if he is uh, on on a ticket. Uh, he he would not want to lose any of his no, own no, no, spotlight. No, no, no. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Trump runs in 24. 
then DeSantis runs in 28, and then oh, DeSantis I'm runs sorry. again. I, I thought you said 32. Trump and DeSantis as in on the same ticket. DeSantis no, being no, the no, no, no. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Like I misunderstood you completely. 12-year span of Dynastic conservative world. governance. Right, exactly. Got, got That's it. what I'm saying. Trump got then DeSantis. Maybe I should have said that way. Trump then DeSantis. Got right? it. Yeah, yeah. Because I've heard, I hear a lot of people saying Trump and DeSantis would be unbeatable. It would never work. It would be oil and water. Uh, like I said, President Trump doesn't want to have to compete for spotlight with anybody like uh, Ron DeSantis' popularity is high. You know, if they were on the same team. Yeah, team. I, Ron no, DeSantis I, wouldn't I, don't wanna, see, I don't see that. Yeah, he would. He wouldn't want to uh, anchor himself and end up being like Mike Pence and uh, you know being you know villainized if something goes wrong. So, but yeah, um, uh, President Trump is far and away the leader in the uh, you know in the uh, even though Ron DeSantis has raised the money but not yet declared, he's far and away the leader. The CPAC results showed that, so I think it's pretty clear how this is going to turn out. The question is whether or not the tent will get any larger from Middle America, from cent- uh, from a centrist America. Do you think that he will be able to pull anybody in who did not vote for? him in 2020 to vote for him in 2024 i think he can because the situation on the ground has changed we're actually facing the threat of world war three when you look at what's going on in ukraine when you look at what's going on in the taiwan straits and suddenly all of the peace and prosperity that we had for four years when he was president no new wars has all been thrown aside we're actually uh hearing the the president of russia talking about using nuclear weapons for the first time that we've heard in in decades and in a situation like that, I think that people will take a lot of those other issues, they'll put them aside and say, you know what, you need someone who's a strong leader on national security and has always stood on a record for peace. I completely agree with that. You know, somebody said, I can't remember who it was, uh, it might have been public, it might have been a pri- private conversation, but said that there's one man on this earth who could manage to pull Zelensky and Putin and Xi Jinping into a room at the same time and say, let's hammer this out right now. And that man, the only guy with the gravitas to do that is Donald Trump. He's got the... When, when, you, need, the when you need a world deal, you need a world-class dealmaker, am I right? There you go. Absolutely right. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Jack Posobiec, we are so looking forward to hearing from you in this terrific presentation. going to be Saturday morning uh, uh, in the breakfast uh, speech slot uh, for the Bringing America Back, the, Back to Life convention. I appreciate you coming on, Jack. Thank Thanks for your, your inspirational words and your wisdom, and we'll look forward to seeing you this weekend. I'm so looking forward. God bless. Thank you, sir. God bless you, too. All right, that's Jack Posobiec. Terrific conversation. Terrific uh, presentation. I know that he's going to give, uh, first of all, Molly doesn't schedule uh, average guests. Molly schedules phenomenal guests who are phenomenal speakers. And you can count on Jack Posobiec and Star Parker and Mark Paoletta and... Uh, uh, and uh, Kristen Hawkins and Seth Dillon. This is going to be a terrific, terrific weekend, and Jack is going to be a huge part of it. All right, it's 1028. We'll take a time out for our bottom of the hour news, and we'll come back. We are guest-free until top of the hour. That's when Jack Windsor makes his return. So uh, plenty of time for phone calls. Next segment, 216-901-0945 and 888 on Always Right Radio. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. 1037 now. Thanks for being with us on Always Right Radio. Jack Windsor coming up at the top of the hour. A lot of new stories that we're trying to get into today through the interviews and in between the interviews. Um, are you still watching Tucker uh, and the quote-unquote expose on... Uh, on January 6th. Look, that that January 6th committee, the unselect committee, 
which was nothing but, again, a fake public show trial featuring nine prosecutors and zero defense attorneys, no cross-examination, no expert witness presentation, just all of the propaganda that they want you to see and to believe, and nothing of the you know contrary, nothing to the contrary. Uh, that was an abomination. And I find it hilarious that Tucker has been given an opportunity now to present um, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. The stuff that the select committee did not want you to see. The footage that they don't want you to know exists. The reality that they don't want you to accept. They want you to just go on with their um, edited, out-of-context version of what happened on January 6th. And they want you to believe that anybody and everybody who was there is a criminal, anarchist, white supremacist, they have said. Uh, insurrectionist. They want you to believe all of those things. So Tucker has the ability now to... Shine a spotlight on all of that, all of the corruption, all of the lies. And I'll be honest with you, two days in, I don't think he's doing enough. He's doing enough to tick off the left. He's doing enough to tick off the Uniparty, too. Chuck Schumer made an impassioned speech after Monday's show, Tucker Carlson show, uh, uh, in the Senate on the Senate floor, talking about how it should be incumbent upon the Fox News executives to rein this man in and make sure he does not show any more of the forty thousand hours or so of footage of the people's house. The U.S. Capitol belongs to the people. Nobody else should be allowed to see any more of that because it's too dangerous. Mitch McConnell, the Republican who should be on the side of fairness, the Constitution, and the law, which includes due process, it includes the truth. He should be on the side of the truth. And not this cherry-picked, out-of-context, you know, hand-picked information that they chose to present on that committee. He joined Chuck Schumer in saying he thinks Tucker Carlson should not be airing this. Why? See, I agree with Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer in one way. I agree that Tucker Carlson shouldn't be airing what he is airing. He should be, but where we differ is he should be airing so much more. He has so he ought to have so much more information and so much more video evidence of crimes committed against political prisoners, not the criminals who committed uh, attacks against the Capitol building. We saw those for two years by way of that select committee. That's all they did was show the worst of the worst. They didn't show the overwhelming number of people who were peaceful. So my, my problem is, you know, it's similar to Schumer and McConnell and those who say Tucker Carlson's doing this, doing uh, the wrong thing here, except I just think Tucker needs to do so much more. Scant little att- First of all, if you watched yesterday, Tucker featured one of the Capitol Police officers who was f- abandoned by command staff and forced to make decisions himself on what to do to try to keep the peace in, in given circumstances where he was on that uh, on that day. And um, this guy was fired after it was revealed that he made some decisions on his own because the supervisors abandoned him, and then he was wearing a MAGA hat. He claimed 
And Tucker reiterated this during the interview with him that he put on, somebody put the MAGA hat on his head and he decided to leave it there because it would help him get through the crowd without being obstructed and without being, you know, harmed. And Tucker reiterated the point. It was your ticket through the crowd. How does that help? You, what Tucker essentially said and what this officer essentially said was, if I wasn't wearing a MAGA hat, the crowd would have attacked me as a police officer. How does that help? Tucker, how does that help make the crowd, which was overwhelmingly peaceful, and it is only a small select percentage of that crowd that got violent and committed vandalism, how does it help to say to bring this guy on to say, if I didn't have my MAGA hat showing that I was one of them, they would have beat me. They would have attacked me. How does that help the crowd? How does that help the, 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 uh, the narrative here? I didn't like it at all. It was, it was hurting, not helping. But then Tucker finally did get somewhere when he had Julie Kelly on. And Julie Kelly has been covering the saga of the political prisoners of January 6th from the beginning. Those people who have been now held for 26 months in some cases without a trial Complete violation of the right to a speedy trial. Complete violation of their right to face their accusers. Completely uh, uh, unconstitutional the way they're being treated. And Julie Kelly has been all over this. And Julie Kelly talked to Tucker a little bit, and I read about a little bit of what she had to say as well, about how it is and why it is that these political prisoners are not being allowed to have their trials. One of the ways that they're doing it is they continue to change the charges against them. They'll either add charges or they will add co-defendants to try to pull trials into one. Every time they make a change of some kind, the defense attorney has to start from scratch and trying to figure out how to, to present the case. That's one of the things they're doing. The other thing is that the judges refuse to allow any of these um, political prisoners to get a change of venue, to have a jury trial somewhere else where they won't be so extraordinarily biased. Do you know that there is a 99% conviction rate in these D.C. courts for any of the uh, January 6th defendants who have been given trials? The left wing, in it just completely rules and dominates Washington, D.C. The population there, not to mention the leadership, but the population, the jury pool is overwhelmingly far left, and they despise anybody that was associated with the January 6th uh, melee that they want to call an insurrection. So there needs to be a change of venue, but the problem is the judges won't grant any change of venue. Why? Well, because the DOJ and the district attorneys don't want them to. Why? Because anybody and everybody that had anything to do with January 6th, even if they were just a tourist passing through in that crowd, has to be convicted in order to send a message that the people can never, ever again expect to be heard by their government. Every single member of that crowd Again, violent, nonviolent, carrying flags, not carrying flags, wearing don't tread on me Gadsden shirts, or anything, anybody else. Everybody must go down in order for their narrative to be complete. Over a hundred men so far, according to Julie Kelly, have been held without trial and without bail. You've got accused murderers and rapists getting out on no bail in courts all over this country. 
completely no cash bail, and they just expect them to turn back up for their trials. But these people who tra- trespassed on the Capitol grounds get no bail for over two years. Nonviolent crimes. But the reason why is because they're considered by the DOJ branded as being threats or as domestic terrorists. These judges are following the letter of the commands of the Department of Justice, of Merrick Garland. They're nothing more than rubber stamps of the DOJ and the left-wing district attorneys that tell them what to do. These judges have no power, or they just completely agree with what they're being told to do, and that is their power. But the reality is, there needs to be a change of venue, and they'll never get them. And you want to know why? Julie Kelly explains this, too. The judges have a very vested interest in making sure that every single one of those people being held is convicted. Why? Because if they're not convicted, then the judges will have to answer for why they kept innocent people behind bars for two and a half years without due process. That's why. They will deny every change of venue motion that has been made. They know that the left-wing juries will continue to guarantee convictions as long as they're held in D.C. And they must have those convictions because, again, if they allow these political prisoners to be acquitted in trials, perhaps if they go elsewhere, then the judges will have to answer for why they held these people for over two years, two and a half years, as innocent people. The judges would never survive such a thing in D.C., they rule with an iron fist. And if these people are convicted by a jury of their peers, well, then the judges were right to show no mercy to these these insurrectionist animals. But if they actually get a fair trial and they're acquitted, talking about the nonviolent ones, well, then the judges are through. So that's that it was about the only part of last night's presentation from Tucker Carlson that had any value at all was the interview with Julie Kelly. I'm very, very underwhelmed borderline disappointed by what I'm seeing in the presentation of the 44,000 hours or 41,000 hours or whatever it is of uh, of videotape being given to Tucker Cross. I'm very, very disappointed. They need to do so much more. He and his team need to, need to do so much more for these victims to tell their stories, show where they were on January 6th. Much deeper dive into Ray Epps needs to be done. It was a very scant passing of his story both Monday and Tuesday. I'm very, very Alarmed that Tucker is not, he's not giving his all on this. And I cannot help but wonder if Rupert Murdoch and the bosses at Fox heard Chuck Schumer's command to silence this guy, silence Tucker Carlson. I wonder if they didn't hear it and are acting on it. And they're allowing Tucker to go ahead with his presentations, but pulling him way back. Because that's how it smells from here. 216-901-0945. Joanne is in Twinsburg. Joanne, go ahead. You're on the air. You kind of stole my thunder a little bit, Bob. I mean, I, didn't I was know kind you of were under- bringing thunder today. I would have <laughs> stolen it. it. Well, I, w- I was kind of underwhelmed by Tucker, too. I mean, some of it is a reaffirmation of what I already knew. Yeah. But my thing is Fox News. Remember when James O'Keefe did the thing with the Pfizer guy? Yeah. And Tucker was the only one on Fox who talked about it. I do. Same thing with this. 
Nobody else on Fox has a lot of talk about this. I mean, Sean might mention it, maybe Laura, but very little besides Tucker. Does Tucker have free reign to pretty much do what he wants? I don't know how that works in your in that business. Well, when you have, um, I don't think there's any standard way that works in this business. Um, I think you okay. have, I think you have some cash cows who are given contracts that give them a lot of leeway and a lot of room to do what they want to do on their programs. And I think Tucker Carlson is that way. He his ratings are so phenomenal. He triples, quadruples anybody else in the time slot. He's easily the highest rated show on all of cable news across any day parts, any time of day. Um, I think he's got a contract that lets him do what he wants to do. However, there must be something in there that can help pull him back. First of all, to your to your point about nobody else talking about this, yeah, used to be Brian Kilmeade and the people on the morning show and uh, during the day, uh, even uh, on the five, they would say, yeah, this is what Tucker had last night, and he talked about this, that, and the other. Usually they would be all over it, but they're not, and I don't right. know why. But and that, they did so the same thing with Project Veritas. Yeah. You know, and that whole Pfizer story. That's correct, and they wouldn't cover that either. I just don't get it. But, I mean, just hearing Chuck Schumer yesterday say, Murdoch, you need to stop him. You know, first of all, I don't think Rupert Murdoch's calling the shots anymore. It's his liberal kids. Yeah, well, whoever, whoever, yeah, whoever, whoever, yeah, whoever the bosses are now who are making these decisions. I mean, it's Lachlan Murdoch and and the one from Wisconsin, Paul Ryan, calling the shots now. But, I mean, but, so, but regardless of who he called out, the yeah. point is he told Fox leadership, and Joanne, i got to go. I thank you for the call. He told Fox leadership to sh- shut Tucker up, and then Tucker gave what was less than, I think, uh, an impressive showing last night of this information that everybody has been waiting for. So I, does that does – that, see, and I know I might be sounding a little bit contradictory here when I say that, you know, Tucker has free reign. A lot of guys have con- – well, I shouldn't say a lot – select few people have contracts that allow them to do what they want like this if they're so successful and they make so much money for the company. But then now he's being told to be silenced. It does sound contradictory. Um, but, I, but I think there, there may be a little bit of competing forces working here. I do. I think these forces may be going at each other a little bit. But Tucker did not give, and is not really in two days, in my opinion, given me the meat that I want of this situation. He's given us just a little small, tiny appetizer, but not the meal. Um, and I don't know why. I just don't know why. Joanne, I thank you for the phone call. Let's uh, talk to Dan in uh, Middleburg Heights. Dan, go right ahead. Good morning, Bob. Hi, Dan. Um, you, I believe you've done a... I, I've watched Tucker and everything you've been talking about, okay, and your prior guest, you know, mm-hmm. after right. the, everything, so uh, right up to this moment. So you, uh, you, you said everything that I'm thinking in my own mind, okay, but I'd like to tie this with history and what's going on in our country that doesn't look good, and that includes Tucker, Fox. And you have to go back to World War One and Two. I watch a lot of the other uh, last three or four years since the pandemic and everything. You need to watch Stalin and then the Germans and, and with Hitler, okay? Our country right now, if you watch, you know, the Geographic Channel, American Heroes Channel with all the archives films, our country is being run. Everything that you're trying to figure out, why the judges are on the take and don't convict them, you know, they're, uh, they're letting people sit in jails. Yeah. They're, it's just like Stalin and Hitler, they're after political opponents. Our country is, it mirrors exactly what's happened in the past. And we're going through it in our own time, in real time now. They're shutting up Tucker. They can only can say so much. You got Schumer, McConnell, the judges. It's not one judge, it's any judge will block Trump on voting. 
nobody can go nowhere because the judges don't even look at the evidence, Bob. They just say, I ain't looking at it, and they, that's it. And you answered the question why the judges won't, because then they all look bad. And I believe that they have to be either on the take or being extorted, because nobody makes decisions like this. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily go so far. And thank you, Dan, for the call. Great points and great reference to the historical uh, precedents here. I, I wouldn't call them on the take I, because I, that would that would indicate that they're willing to do something they don't believe in for money, right? For a bribe. I think they're left wing judges in a left wing town, in a left wing district with left wing uh, constituents and left wing DAs. And I just think they're all on the same page. I don't think they need to be bribed or being on the take. I don't even know if they're being extorted. They're just being, they're just cooperating. I think with what the, uh, what the uh, ideology is there. That's what I really think is happening. Um, great call. Great stuff. Great history too. We'll be back after this. Ten fifty-seven. Always Right Radio continuing. Don't forget Jack Windsor after the top of the hour. After Jack, we'll have time for more calls, too, so don't get discouraged if you don't get on right away. Tanya in Akron. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Bob. I think that uh, you're not giving Tucker credit. I just left Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. If he was to put all that information out, it would be out in a day, and it would loot, and it would be gone. He's trickling it down so people can have good bites of it. And then you do your job, take the stuff that he has and keep suspensing to your audience because D.C. is a special. I want to see relatives that that, that are believed that everything that the J6 committee was lost. And they're not going to take it in one dose. But I like that fact that he's doing that and giving us news and his interview with Russell Brand is phenomenal. We need to watch that because other people are waking up and they're trusting him to give the truth. We have to have a truth teller. And when no one believes that the other side has a truth teller, we need someone that can get other people that don't agree with us to talk about what we're talking about. That's all I have to say. Well, I think you make some good, and thank you, Tanya, for the call, as always. I think you make some good points. I disagree with some of them. Um, I, I think the trickle uh, release of the information and that he's got on these uh, 40,000 40, hours um, is, is more geared toward ratings than than digestible sound bites. I mean, if everybody knows Tucker's the only person in the world who has what Kevin McCarthy gave him and everybody has to watch, does he want them all to watch on one night or on multiple nights, on a week's worth of nights, on two weeks' worth of nights, every day, another bite or two. I think there's a balance that can be struck. I agree we can't do it all in one night or two nights, but I want the meat. I want to get to the heart of this thing. I don't want to be nibbling around the edges here. I want uh, to, to know exactly what we have, and more specifically, what the truth is about the involvement of people like Feds, like Ray Epps, and what the truth is about some of the people who are being held for two and a half years now, or two years and two months, without trial um, for nonviolent offenses. I don't want to hear him interviewing a police officer, a Capitol Police officer who wore a MAGA hat to, quote, help me get through the crowd, which insinuates that if the crowd thinks that it's just a regular cop and not a MAGA-supporting cop, they were going to beat him and attack him. That doesn't help. That doesn't help the view that the American people have of the people who were there protesting. The peaceful protesters, the violent ones, obviously, different story. 
the, the ones who committed vandalism, I want them all to be treated the way you treat a, a BLM or an Antifa rioter, vandalizer, uh, window breaker, arsonist, looter, and so forth. Treat them all the same, in my view. But they're not treating anybody else in those other types of protests the same way they're treating these individuals who got violent and got uh, you know and who committed vandalism. I'm just saying that the the way the crowd is portrayed matters, and to portray them as potentially a crowd that would beat up a cop if he didn't have a red hat on yesterday didn't help the cause; it hurts the cause. We'll talk to Jack Windsor next on Always Right Radio, AM fourteen twenty. The answer. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by Keeping Medicare Simple and The Floor King. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Ten minutes after 11 o'clock, and hour number three is underway on Always Right Radio. It's a Wednesday, eighth morning of the third month year of our Lord, 2023. You know what Wednesday means. That means Jack Windsor bursts through the door, followed by his adoring crowd, cheering his every move. Back patting him on his phenomenal work on the Ohio Press Network and as our State House correspondent for AM 1420 The Answer, Jack Windsor. Welcome back, my friend. How are you, sir? Bob, I'm super fantastic. Great to be here with you and the listeners uh, this morning. Thanks for choosing me. Do you run a bus for those folks who follow you around every day or are they all like on their own? Yeah, you know, man, that's I'm looking for a van, so you know, I can I can add to my uh, add to my people and we can just roll around the state of Ohio and you know, I can I can feel better about myself. You know, funny funny story. Actually, I took Latin in high school, and yeah. uh, you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the leaders back wait, in wait uh, wait 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 before you tell your funny story. You took Latin yeah. in high school. That puts you on the radar of the FBI, doesn't it? Probably. Well, dude, if I'm not, I, I'm I'm probably on a poster somewhere in DC, Bob. <laughs> Let's be real about that. And I'm talking, of course, I mean, about the uh, the FBI. Uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, had decided to target Latin mass attending Catholics as potential terrorists, domestic terrorists, right. specifically Latin right. attend- so attendees. So I'm assuming that 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 counts you. Anyway, your story. No, so you know, way back in the day, um, in, in ancient Rome, uh, th- there were people that would walk around and whisper into the ears of these leaders, "You're great, you're phenomenal." So yeah, you know, I'm just trying to emulate that man with my crew. So we're trying to buy a van so I can just continue to feel better about myself as we Love roll it. around the state of Ohio. Love it, Jack's people, <laughs> Jack's people everywhere he goes. Jack, um, lot lot to get into today. I want to yep. start. I want to start selfishly, and I want to promote our uh, podcast that we do together. It's called yeah. Talking Smack with Bob and Jack. <clears throat> 
We do it once a week or twice a week, depending on the news cycle and where we are with our own schedules. But uh, this week is a big one. This week we had an interview just uh, two nights ago. We recorded it. It's dropped now wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And you can also catch it on Facebook and on YouTube. But uh, we had a, a good 45 minutes with the man who should be the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the state of Ohio, Derek Marin. Uh, and, Jack, i got to tell you, I mean, he was very upfront. He was very forthright. And he was a heck of mm-hmm. a lot more calm and chill about the way everything went down than I am. You can tell he's frustrated. You can tell he's uh, yeah. he feels like he's got a lot to offer. You can tell the abortion issue that is going to be very front and center in the state now um, is potentially you know in a, in a bad place because of what was yeah. done with the speaker steal. But um, I, I was very impressed by that uh, by the presentation and the answers that Derek Marin gave. What are your thoughts? Well, I thought it was refreshing because there's been so much said and so much written uh, about what happened in November of last year and then on January 3rd when Jason Stevens won the speaker's gavel. So it was, to me, it was intriguing uh, and entertaining to listen to Derek tell the story about what really happened because we heard a lot that, hey, he wasn't calling me or he wasn't organized and he didn't have the calendar put together and the committees put together and he hit it head on. And so um, I think it's really important for people to understand uh, what really went on behind the scenes and, and to hear from Derek. He was calm. Uh, he, he is collected. And, uh, you know, he based on what he said, he still has a purpose. And that purpose is to, you know, to work hard to get conservative legislation over the finish line. So I thought it was a fantastic interview. And, uh, you know, Bob, who knows, maybe we can get Jason Stevens in the next week or two. And uh, he can tell his side of the story, because I think Ohioans need that. I think I think Ohioans need to understand what really happened and why it happened. And we we point blank asked Derek that question. Why did this happen? I mean, you have 67 Republicans. You didn't need a Democrat. Why did this happen? And he said money and power. So I'd love to ask Jason Stevens that same question. Jason, why did it happen, man? Why, why did you split the party? Why is it splintered now? And why do you have to partner with Democrats in order to get things done? And let him answer it. Ohioans deserve that, man. They sure as hell do. And I hope we can make that happen, too. Uh, I am not going to hold my breath, however. Um, uh, we also asked Eric, what is the difference between you and Jason Stevens? He's got a lot of people who are conservative who say he's just as conservative conservative as you are. And I thought Derek's answer, answers were, were terrific. He does draw a very clear distinction between the two of them on a host of very important issues. So if you uh, if you want to hear the whole conversation, just uh, find our podcast, Talk and Smack with Bob and Jack. If you search for it on your podcast provider, don't search for you know my last name or Jack's. Uh, you're not going to find it. You have to look for Talk and Smack with Bob and Jack, and it'll pop up. Up and you can watch it or listen to it wherever it is that you get your podcast. But uh, we certainly think you'll enjoy the conversation with Derek Marin. Um, okay, Jack, let's um, get into some of the news of the day. Let's start first with uh, something you and I talked about long before the 20, uh, November election, <clears throat> elections, plural. And that is the attempt to essentially gut the Department of Education and uh, overhaul it and replace the Board of Education with a cabinet-level position in the leadership of the governor. And that, of course, is mm-hmm. Mike DeWine. Uh, this DEW, Ohio Department of Education and Workforce, is what it would be called, um, mm-hmm. this bill is passed. SB1 has passed the Senate. They're sending it over to the House. And then, of course, it would go to yeah. Mike DeWine, where presumably he would be more than thrilled to sign it, giving him basically control over who runs the uh, Board of Education in the state. So, Jack, uh, explain this to us. 
Yeah, so I'm going to dive in, and you know, I tend to get a little bit of inside baseball, so make sure to pull me out of the weeds where you need to, Bob. But uh, the governance, the governance of, of kindergarten through 12th grade education, it's now uh, purporting to be transferred uh, to a governor-appointed, uh, Senate-approved, cabinet-level position that does what you just said. It renames it the Department of Education and Workforce. So there are really two uh, fa- uh, two separate sides comprising, the, we'll call it the DO or the DEW. It's the Primary and Secondary Education Division and the Career Technical Education Division. Now, both of those divisions are led, obviously, by the uh, deputy directors appointed by the DEW director who's appointed by and accountable to the governor at that cabinet level. level. Now, the governor has a workforce board, too, and so those deputy directors would also be on that uh, workforce panel. And the powers now residing in the state board and uh, the superintendent of public instruction, um, some of those are going to stay there. Uh, they will retain the power regarding educator licensure, licensee disciplinary actions, school district territory transfers in, in other certain areas. Um, but a bulk of the power now resides with the Department of Education and Workforce. Now, uh, I'll pause there. There are a couple of uh, requirements for the Department of Education and Workforce that I think are important to account for. Um, but I'll, I'll pause there, Bob, in case in case I'm already too far. No, 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 no. I think you're. I think you're just fine. This is all very important back backstory information okay. here. We need to know exactly what the uh, what, you know the origin of this was, and then obviously what this is going to mean for students. What this is going to mean for parents, which I think is ultimately. Um, you know, the issue here, because the parents are attempting yeah. more and more to have an influence over school board policy, to have at least yeah. input in discussing things with them. School boards, of course, follow the lead of the State Department of Education. So this matters a lot. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. It does. And so really, you know, issues with curriculum, those are going to reside with and that power resides with the Department of Education and Workforce now. And so there are several people who say, well, wait a minute, there's a lot that's going to go on behind closed doors in these cabinet-level meetings. Have we lost our ability to provide input and accountability? Uh, the, the other side would argue, well, no, there is accountability now because th- this person would answer to the governor. But the Department uh, of Education and Workforce would be required to identify in-demand jobs. Now, Part of why they're doing that is they're also required to provide seventh and eighth graders uh, materials about available career opportunities. Uh, it requires the governor, as I mentioned, to appoint two deputy directors to his governor's executive workforce board. Uh, and then regarding non-chartered public schools, it sets minimum requirements, including hours of instruction, educational requirements for teachers and administrators, curriculum, promotion, safety requirements. And then regarding home education and school attendance, it excuses a child from attending a school if that child or that student is receiving core instruction and supervision from a parent, but not a, quote, qualified person. Um, if upper home instruction stops, it prohibits the superintendent from retroactively counting days that the student was out of school as truant days and charging parents. But it does however, expose the parents to you know, truancy laws going forward. And then um, the Department of Education and Workforce Directors responsible for updating rules for both non-chartered public schools and home schools, and it prohibits adding to those rules. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of broad power and in, in, in shifting going on there, and, and I'm sure that you have heard a lot from uh, 
proponents and opponents who are saying, hey, here's why we have to be concerned. Um, what, what are you hearing, Bob? On your, not a on lot, your Jack. To be truthful, not a lot. That's the reason. I mean, I don't think anybody is really following this very closely. You know, they told, they followed mm-hmm. this a little bit because it was an issue in the in the elections in in November, which we yeah. you and I talked about. You did a lot of work on the uh, how press network about this, but no, not mm-hmm. a lot of people are talking about this. Um, you know, yeah. they just. Uh, uh, I, I I think people are just assuming that you know once the board of education did what it did, which you know we didn't think they were mm-hmm. going to have a chance to do, uh, and that is to essentially tell the superintendent to make recommendations to all of Ohio school districts uh, that they're not going to abide by the new federal Title IX uh, regulations and, and the change in definition and so forth so that we can you know try to have some semblance of reality uh, in, in our schools in terms of gender and, and, and girls sports and, and those kinds of things. But since that happened, Jack, I have not heard a lot of people talking about SB1 at all. Well, it's interesting. I'll, I'll then fill in some of the gaps with what I'm hearing. You know, one of the concerns is, well, wait a minute. We have a Republican governor. What happens if Tim Ryan or some other, you know, chosen Democrat sits in that governor's chair? All of a sudden, uh, he or she will get to appoint uh, someone that, that leads our, our curriculum decisions statewide. But other folks go, well, we don't even have to go that far. Let's look at Governor DeWine's current appointments to the State Board of Education and, you know, his unwillingness to stand against President Biden's radical Title IX changes and to rally the troops that have been appointed by the governor to the Board of Education. There are eight, 11 of them are elected. So uh, out of that 19 member body, if you remember, um, there was a resolution that attempted to push back against some of these radical changes. And DeWine was silent and several of the people that he appointed uh, actually didn't didn't uh, favor that initiative, or if they did, it was with a lot of um, you know wrangling and uh, arm twisting, I guess. And then you look at people like Amy Acton, and you know when she was out, uh, well, who did he try to replace her with? Dr. Joan Duebe, who's an abortionist. And then you look up in your neck of the woods, Bob, there at Cleveland State University, where a board of trustees just removed John Marshall's name from the law school, mm-hmm. and it was a woke moment that was supported by both DeWine and Kasich appointees. So people are going, mm, I'm a little concerned about Mike DeWine having the opportunity to appoint a, a director of the Department of Education and Workforce. Here's the other concern. Uh, there's concern that Intel, a corporation that ramrods woke ap- activism and pro-abortion positions, is the tail that's going to wag the dog. And how this might show up, and I think you're already starting to see it, uh, at least concerned Ohioans are saying it's going to show up this way. And they're going to say, you know, man, China's eating our lunch. They own global production of chips and batteries and so on and so forth. We don't have time to fight these cultural wars. We need to make our state workforce ready. And we do that by making sure that we're reaching down into the education apparatus to make them ready there. And that means making some concessions on cultural issues and really focusing on teaching, training, and developing a workforce that will attract more businesses and provide for productive relationships with big businesses already here. And so then the issue is and the concern is, is that the door that these 96 genders and abortion proliferation uh, are going to walk through? 
And I think those are legitimate concerns. I do, too. I do, too. And and what you said a moment ago about, you know, Governor DeWine, first of all, both parts of that. Governor DeWine's decision-making on uh, important appointments, as you mentioned with Amy Acton as an example, uh, leave a lot to be desired. Do I want him appointing the education version of Amy Acton to be this cabinet-level uh, overseer of the entire uh, State Department of Education? No, I do not, particularly when it comes to curricula. Uh, and second of all, what you said, what when, even if you trust him to make the right call, as you said, he's not going to be the governor forever. What happens when a left-wing governor gets in there and says, we're going all the way left? Now, I have a problem, largely speaking, with with unelected bureaucrats. I don't like people who don't have to answer to the public for what they do, having that kind of power. And, um, you know, whether it's DeWine or anybody else who appoints the wrong guy with woke um, ideology at the core of whatever the curricula is going to be as they try to drive the education in this country into a leftward, uh, you know, a, a left-leaning uh, spiral, if you will. Um, that's a problem for me. I want to be able to remove that person by ballot and uh, and not by, oh, nope, he serves at the pleasure of the governor. I have a problem with that. Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of people do. And, and one of the things that uh, excuse me, proponents of this legislation would point to is they, they would say, well, you know, the, the Senate has the opportunity to, you know, essentially stop the governor from making this appointment. Well, I'm going to point out that the, the Senate unanimously approved Dr. Amy Acton. I'm also going to uh, point out that um, the, the, the previous, uh, you know, the most recent appointees to the um, State Board of Education, the Senate didn't even vote on them, didn't even consider it. So it just happened automatically. So um, it, I, I hear you that the Senate has the ability to do it, but are they going to stand in that gap and, and actually do what they're supposed to I do? I have no faith whatsoever in that. That's one thing I have said, even with super majorities, even with supposedly conservative uh, viewpoints being uh, expressed by the constituents who put these people into their seats, I do not have full faith that they are going to follow uh, the wishes of the people. And, uh, and that's a problem for me. Hey, Jack, um, we don't normally hold you over past our news. Maybe we'll call you back. But if you can, there's one other education yeah. story I'd like you to speak on. And it's uh, it's yeah. kind of local for me and you based on where you are right now. And we're here in Northeast Ohio because it's in uh, Acre, technically Copley Farallon story. We've got good okay. news on the on the. Uh, War for our children's minds in their indoctrinations in these schools, particularly when it comes to sexual sexualized education. So I want to get your comments on that as we uh, come back. So we'll take this time out now. Uh, we'll get to our news. Jack Windsor will stick with us and uh, address this one last issue right here on AM 1420, The Answer. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and Keeping Medicare Simple. Okay, 11.34 now. Jack Windsor has been kind enough to work overtime for us here. Uh, Jack is, uh, of course, the uh, founder and the editor-in-chief of the Ohio Press Network. Make sure you uh, subscribe to that very important publication. Jack is uh, also our Ohio State House correspondent for AM fourteen twenty. The answer. So, Jack, um, some great work, some great news here. Parents of the Copley Fairlawn Middle School dis- uh, middle school um, uh, kids were alarmed to find out their children were being taught about gender identity as part of their fifth grade health curriculum. In a letter sent to parents, Ms. O'Donnell, a health teacher there, introduced the puberty education that fifth graders would receive, lessons covering physical and emotional changes that can be expected during puberty, and um, 
they would be taught in a way that was age-appropriate, scientifically accurate, and non-judgmental. But the lessons did not appear to be age-appropriate or scientifically accurate at all. Instead, they were pushing changing of genders, gender, gender identity and expression on people. That's the problem. Now let's get to the good news here. According to what we just found from Libs of TikTok, the Copley Fairlawn School District has revoked, essentially, that portion of their curriculum. They are removing gender gender identity from uh, their curriculum for their uh, middle school or 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, eighth grade uh, age students. Um, that's a huge win, Jack, because you have been exposing so much of this through yours and your team's work at the uh, Ohio Press Network. And we've been talking about it on the radio, so have been people all over the country, uh, about how dangerous this is for kids. This is a good sign, right? Yeah, it, it seems to be a good sign. Um, and if nothing else, uh, you know, looking at it maybe uh, in a sobering way, I think what it does is it gives you a chance to go, okay, I've got a kid in fourth grade, fifth grade. Maybe I need to reach out to my school and request all the information that is going to be taught on puberty or, you know, physical maturity, all, whatever whatever they're going to call it. Uh, make sure that you understand what's going on because – Bob, you read it. Age appropriate, scientifically accurate, and non judgmental. I mean, there should be a record scratch there. If you're talking about science, there's an XX and there's an XY. You can judge that. That's factual. That's accurate. So when they start using words like non judgmental or gender identity and expression, you really should look into to what's being taught. But kudos to Libs of TikTok and parents for it, what appears to be, you know, an effort together. Uh, to expose what was going on and to stop it before. Can you imagine being a fifth grader and having to not only deal with, I mean, I remember fifth, sixth grade and the, the physical changes and emotional changes that you're going through. And now all of a sudden um, you're told things that aren't scientifically accurate and certainly aren't age appropriate. No. And, and Jack, we need to highlight victories when we get them. Because this, yep. you know, this is what encourages us to work forward and, and, and for parents yep. to work and move forward. Um, we need to know that it's possible to make changes here. This, the, the story goes on. Principal Aaron Walker of this school sent an email to parents acknowledging that the original letter describing the lesson did not meet Ohio standards and confirmed the school would not be teaching about gender identity. So the fact that they heard the call, they heard the complaints, mm-hmm. they looked into it and said, this isn't appropriate. We won't do it now. Hopefully we'll inspire people and, uh, and that's the reason I bring it up uh, Libs of TikTok is posting about it I'm sure you'll cover it in the press network I'm going to put it on the yep. radio because people need to know that their efforts sometimes bear fruit it's what keeps us making yep. the effort Amen couldn't have said it any better I'm glad you brought us back on track with that and uh, you know it's important to note that um, health curriculum standards are in the Ohio law and, and so you know make sure that you're holding that up to, to what's being taught and uh, yeah kudos to uh, the district, by the way, for making the right decision, because, you know, uh, that's what they should do, but it's not what they always do. So it is a victory, and you take it and take a victory lap, but stay persistent. Well, to be truthful, it's more than just, you know, not always. It's rare, which is why we're it's newsworthy. You know what I mean? It's it's rare yep. that we actually yep. find somebody willing uh, or or a school willing to say, yeah, that was wrong, this is right, let's do this, because um, the, the right now, 
Um, what seems to be the M.O. is that school districts listen to parents complaining about things like this. Uh, they smile at them. They nod at them. They thank them for speaking at the uh, at the school board meeting. And then when they leave the room, they all laugh and scream bigots. Uh, and they just dismiss them. They're bigots. They're anti-LGBTQ. Uh, uh, you know, they're anti-gender affirm- affirming care. They're, you know, they don't care if kids kill themselves. All of this crap that you hear is is pretty much what is the response of, of most schools are uh, and school boards are and, and even, quite yep. frankly, administrators. So they have this administrator in the form of a principal saying, no, that's it. We're not doing that. Um, very rare and very important for us to highlight when we get it. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, you know, it makes me think back to Toledo, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, uh, the areas where there was, uh, you know, undercover work done over the past several months. And it, it exposed what was going on, which is what you just said. And, you know, it's not just the LGBTQ plus activism, it's CRT, it's, it's all kind of this big ball of mess, right? Um, that's designed to create discontent and you know, separate students from their deeply held convictions and familial ties that, you know, keep them on a certain track in life. And so what, what those investigations uncovered is that schools are saying exactly what you just said. Oh, yeah, we hear you. We hear, no, 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 we're not doing that. You know, and then they're naming it something else or they're taking it out of the curriculum and doing it in extracurriculars or doing it at story time. And so well, didn't, um, didn't we find this out? Didn't we find this out in Olentangy where your daughter or was it um, it might have been Hilliard um, where it wasn't in the curriculum. It wasn't even in the, you know, the rec time or whatever. It was just between classes, hallway conversations. Hey there. Uh, did you know about yeah. this? And they just kind of they just kind of strike up conversations and put it under the radar, but inside the heads of your kids. And that's something that we found out was going on. Hilliard, it was going on. And I can say from personal experience how how it goes on in, say, schools like Olentangy is that they have a school counselor that comes in, you know, once every two weeks, and they have these discussions, and they start using phrases like children's bill of rights, and you have a right to your unique identity, right? And so they start depositing these thoughts. Certainly a kid has a bill of rights. It's the bill of rights that we all live under. Um, but, you know, they kind of bastardize that and then make it sound like, um, hey, we need to really protect everybody's individual right, which... I agree. If a student at 18 or 19 or 20 years old wants to pretend to be something else, that's great. But if a typical student doesn't want to go along with that, the line in the sand for me is start punishing that typical student um, and their deeply held convictions and beliefs, which actually are scientific and accurate. Um, but I digress. So, yes, big win, big, big win. Uh, kudos to the parents and to Lips' TikTok for exposing this. Well, to to correct part of what you just said, you don't digress. You're you're right on point. This is specifically what we're talking about. No, it's 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 accurate, and it's and it's right to bring it up, uh, because the bottom line is it's not just about their deeply held religious beliefs or whatever. I mean, it's just also grammar when it comes to pronoun usage. Uh, the yeah. kids are being taught what what a boy and a girl are, and what he and him means, and what they and them means, and so on, and plurals. Uh, all of this stuff is between the science of it, the English of it. We're asking kids to set aside reality. We're asking them to set aside our established language, our established science, our established, you know, DNA, biology, and so on and so forth, all in an effort to not, in the, in the reality is, it's not even to affirm the individuals who are playing the game, the, the pretend game, it is to make sure that the kids um, uh, avoid ostracization. They're willing to do it, not out of affirmation, but out of fear of being condemned, being called what their parents are called, bigots, and so on and so forth. Ostracized, suspended, in trouble, etc. That's the real thing here. These kids are doing this at the tip of a spear, not out of a willingness to uh, uh, to try to you know to go along. No, you're absolutely right, and it guilts them. 
it shames them and it blames them for things that are going on that they don't agree with. And, you know, that creates a ton of pressure. And I think that's why you probably see uh, that right now the trendy thing is to be transgender or to be gender fluid or to be, you know, to have a certain sexual preference that is, you know, off the standard because there's so much social pressure uh, and and there's so much going on, uh, you know, on social media. But, um, yeah, I I mean, the thing that bothers me, Bob, as I think about this, and I'll try to bring this around the barn quickly, is that we talked about this last time. God puts on your heart right and wrong. And, you know, we get into this mindset that we're going to teach kids to be nonjudgmental. Hey, if somebody pulls up in a van and they have Smarties and duct tape, I want my kid to judge that that's what the heck out of Dodge. Why are we trying to teach our kids to go against things that actually will protect them, help them make wise choices in life, and, you know, live a, a richer, more satisfying life later on? Um, it's it's crazy to me. And I just wonder at some point where the line is for everybody. I, I wonder if many people just still think, hey, this really isn't going on or it will eventually go away. It's a fad. But man, think about all the damage that gets done to a kid emotionally and psychologically in the interim before this gets corrected. Yeah, and I think there's two. The the younger parents who actually have the kids in this think that they're being forward-thinking and progressive, and the older generations don't have kids anymore, and so they're just kind of ignoring it. That's not my problem, and that is a huge problem. Jack Windsor, thank you, my friend. I appreciate you being here. Uh, Always a pleasure. That's all the time we've got for today. Thanks to my guests, thanks to my team, and thanks to you. We'll see you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.